Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love to have them, I guess, or in that general range, have them part of our Vine Kids time. Uh, and if you have middle school, fifth, sixth, seventh or so, we have a great opportunity out them in our little kind of front gathering area that they can be a part of. We'd love for them to, to be a part of, of those things. So for those of you that are here with us for the first time, we've been on this kind of lengthy journey through the gospel of John. We are into week 46 now of John's gospel. And our whole goal is just to have to move through word by word, line by line, section by section as we examine John's gospel. And John as a gospel writer, as I say each week, is really concerned with something different than the other gospel writers. John is not interested in course of telling this sort of history, the life of Jesus. He is not interested in making sure that we know the places that Jesus went and the things that he did. He's really interested in us knowing the deity of Christ. He wants us as readers and hearers of his gospel, of his letter, to know that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh, the incarnation. His gospel is, it's sort of a, a plea for the incarnation of Jesus. He wants us to know that Jesus is in fact God. And so everything in his gospel lines up pointing us to that singular truth, that we would see Jesus as God's son. And I say each week that what makes my job as a teacher or a pastor so easy is that all I should have to do is to get up and say, I want you to see Jesus. And that's really it. And John's gospel is that incredible picture of that. And, uh, and so this morning we're into week 46 of that encounter. And just as a quick reminder of where we've been, we spent five weeks in chapter 11. And we spent those weeks there because it took us so long to sort of unpack the beautiful nuances that were in that Chapter. And if you remember, that entire chapter was really surrounding the events that went with the death and the resurrection of Jesus' good and dear friend, Lazarus. The entire chapter is kind of built around the moment that Jesus hears Lazarus is sick and he dies until both Martha and Mary at different times come out to Jesus where he's still out on the road and they fall at his feet or they, they come to him and they say, Lord, if you would have only been here, my brother, he would have lived, right? They make this deep, real plea. They believe and they, they kind, of, kind of confess their faith, but they also lay their deep brokenness out in front of and Jesus, and then we get to this sort of jaw-dropping miracle where Jesus shows up at the tomb and in this authoritative voice that speaks life into death, he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out still wrapped in all of his grave clothes. And it says that we learned last week as Brandon kind of taught us at the end of chapter 11 that people put their faith in him. And, and the Jews that were there were, were astonished and they began to believe, but some of them went and told the Pharisees, Right? because we have this great kind of powerful, contentious relationship that's really reached at all-time high with the Pharisees. And they go to the Pharisees and basically say, hey, you know, Jesus has raised this last from the dead, and the Pharisees, they lose it. And they get the Sanhedrin, which is a ruling council together, and they officially issue a arrest warrant for Jesus because they've got to kill him. And he tells us there at the end of chapter 11 that the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and the chief priests and all those that make up the Sanhedrin are extremely concerned because people are beginning to believe in Jesus. And that's going to cause a couple things to happen. One, it's going to cause them to lose their position. And two, it's going to cause them to lose their power. And so they decide <clears throat> that even though they don't doubt that Jesus has done these miracles, many of them have witnessed the incredible things that Jesus have done, they would rather be at a place where they would arrest and kill Jesus and to lose their power 
and position. And so they officially, Caiaphas, uh, one of the chief priests of the time, officially issues this arrest warrant. And the plan is we're going to arrest and we're going to kill Jesus. And that's where we left off last week. And as I mentioned kind of in our little opening there as we went back into worship, this week we are stepping into the last week in the life of Jesus. So a little bit of time passes, not much. Jesus returns to Bethany where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live on his way to celebrate Passover, which is going to be the Thursday night before the day of Jesus' crucifixion, the night that he's betrayed, and we're going to step into the last week. And this is Saturday, right? The day before Palm Sunday is where our text is going to unfold this morning. What we're going to see is this incredibly beautiful picture that happens when our love for Jesus truly aligns with his value and worth. And it's a very um, incredible sort of powerful picture. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 12. And we're going to be in the first uh, 11 verses. And we'll kind of explore them together and then unpack them. And I'll point a few things out. And then we get to the kind of the joy to celebrate communion together this morning. And so all of these sort of pieces are, uh, are happening. So if you've got your Bible, let's open up to John chapter 12. And then we'll dive into this text together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for, um, well, I thank you, God, that you don't treat me as my sins deserve. And I thank you that that truth is for every one of us, that you don't treat us as we deserve. Lord, we are uh, dishonest, we are selfish, we are prideful, we are consumer-driven. Lord, we are afraid, we are full of anxiety, we are full of worry. We are full of fear. All of these things are so contrary to who you are. And yet instead of punishing us, you gave us Jesus. That if we put our hope and trust in Jesus, we have this incredible new life that doesn't just begin when we die with the promise of heaven, but begins in this very breath that is full and abundant life here on earth and the promise of an eternal life to come. And that is the, the truth, the gospel, the good news, that through Jesus we have this, that if we put our faith and trust in him. This morning, Lord, we come together as a, a body. Some of us are part of this little community for a long time, some of us here for the first time, but nonetheless, we gather together, Lord, with that truth on our hearts. And so we pray that you would teach us this morning through your word, that you would make your word come alive to, uh, alive to us. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we don't take that lightly. Take a moment in your own heart, as we do each week, and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Whatever he needs to speak or teach you, just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone uh, beside you, in front of you, behind you. We do this each week as well. It's a reminder in our hearts that this whole thing that unfolds on Sunday morning is not about you. It's not about your entertainment, or uh, it's about God moving in the heartbeats and lives of people. And so pray for the people around you. Pray that God would move in them, that he would have their way with them, that he would reveal himself to them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We believe um, that you are a God who reveals truth, and so God, we ask you to do that in our hearts. Teach us through your word, and we ask this in Jesus' risen <clears throat> and holy and perfect name. Amen. So John chapter 12, right? J Lazarus has been raised from the dead, 
Um, some time has passed, although it doesn't seem like much. Maybe a week um, kind of could be anything, but it doesn't look like much time has passed. Enough time for Jesus to leave the area of Bethany and then come back. And we're going to pick up in 12, and this is what we see. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who later would betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It is worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as the keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to whatever was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Now, this story is uh, often omitted from the last week in the life of Christ. Oftentimes, we, we kind of look at the last week and we begin with Palm Sunday because, of course, it's Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. But the way that I think about the narratives that have unfolded, this day really unfolds as a sort of part of that last week, although maybe chronologically it's a couple of hours outside of that window, but it is so in line with the incredible things that are going to unfold in those days that it fits perfectly within that narrative. So Jesus has been gone enough time to to have Lazarus kind of return back to his house and go about life kind of as normal. Although it's not enough time for people to fully get it because at the end of this text, we see that some of the Jews came to see Lazarus because they had heard that he'd been raised from the dead. So it's really, really fresh. And it's six days before the Passover, which happens on Thursday. And so we are on Saturday evening before the triumphal entry, which is gonna take place next week. We'll actually look at it next week. And Jesus goes riding into town in the back of this baby donkey. It's that Saturday night, and he's headed to Bethany so that he can go to Jerusalem. Bethany was just a short distance from Jerusalem. And Jesus goes back to Bethany where a dinner is being held in his honor, right? So you got to understand the sort of circumstances that surrounded this dinner. Remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus, right? Jesus had this deep and relationship with them and he loved them and just a few cha- uh, chapter a few verses earlier we have seen this incredible outpouring of emotion that both Mary and Martha had Jesus learns that Lazarus is sick he tells the disciples it's not going to end in death and Lazarus dies Martha comes out first she comes out on the road to where Jesus was several miles away from Bethany and she pleads with him and she says Lord if you would have only been here my brother would not have died And Jesus looks at her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die even though he lives. And he says, do you believe this? And she says, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus basically affirms in her that this will not end in death, but it's this sort of gut-wrenchingly emotional time where the pain of her heart is meeting full force with her faith and trust in Jesus. 
And she goes and returns to the house and she finds Mary and she says, Mary, the teacher, Jesus, he's asking for you. And Mary goes out to the road and the account is that Mary falls at his feet. She falls right at his feet in sort of this picture of, of desperation and worship and honor. And she says the exact same thing, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. They both believe that Jesus had the power to intercede and stop Lazarus from dying. And we remember that really, really clearly because what happens? Jesus stands her up, right? And he says, where have you laid him? And they tell him, and then Jesus weeps. And we talked about this word and the, the things that are sort of tied up in Jesus' emotional response. And Jesus, we did all of that, but it was this picture of both emotion and holy anger rolled into one. And Jesus goes to the tomb and he stands there. And, and with all these Jews that have come from Jerusalem to support Mary and Martha and to be part of this mourning process, they're all gathered there. Jesus tells them to roll away the stone, right? And they roll back the stone. And, and Martha objects at first because she's like, it's going to smell. And Jesus says, just do it. They rolled it back and he calls Lazarus out and Lazarus' dead and rotting heart jumps to life, right? This is all those things that have unfolded. And they get together and they throw a dinner in Jesus' honor, right? What they're doing is they're throwing a dinner to honor Jesus who had raised their brother and in Lazarus' case had raised him from the dead. It's an incredible picture because it's not a, hey, Jesus is coming to town, let's grab something to eat. It's let's host a meal together with the God who has transformed our lives, who we love so dearly, and who raised Lazarus, who did what only God can do. And they throw this dinner in Jesus' honor. And we learn something really important from Matthew chapter, six, chapter 26, which is also the account of this. We learn that this dinner was not actually held at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home. It was actually held in the home of a guy named Simon the leper. Now, we don't know anything about Simon. It was actually a very common name. But we do know that Matthew tells us that he was a leper. At some point in time, he had a skin disease that caused him to be an unclean outcast. And Jesus had healed him. And we know that Jesus had healed him because now he has a house in the city. And with his leprosy, he would have never been permitted to be allowed to have a house within the city limits. And yet here they are gathered at Simon, most likely the former leper's house, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and most likely a whole host of people who just loved Jesus. Mary and Martha invited those that were their closest to come and be a part of this thing in their honor. And what is Martha doing? Martha does what she does. She's serving, right? We know that from Luke, where Luke has this encounter where Martha is serving and Mary's sitting at his feet. You remember that story? And Martha comes and tells on Mary and says, Jesus, help her help me. And Jesus says, no, Mary's chosen what's right. She's sitting here. Well, Martha does what she knows. And she's serving. And Lazarus, it tells us, is reclining at the table. What a cool picture, right? Here's Lazarus, Lazarus, who was formerly dead, rotting in a tomb, now reclining at a table. And the tables in those sort of Middle Eastern cultures were really low to the ground. They usually sat on pillows on the floor. It wasn't like you and I have a kitchen table with four chairs. They had a, a table that would be low and they would sit around it and they would lean back on pillows. And it was sort of this, this meal that would take place in this comfortable setting, and they're sitting there reclining, and, and I can only imagine what's unfolding, right? Stories and laughter and seriousness and maybe retelling the story of his resurrection. Like, Jesus, tell me again. You know, I mean, like, it's just a really cool picture. And then in comes Mary, right? And Mary comes into the scene with this pint. Actually, it's 11 ounce, not quite a pint. The translation there just kind of says about, but it's about 11 ounces of pure nard, 
Now, spikenard or pisticnard is a very expensive perfume that comes from the root of a plant that grows in the Himalayan mountains, and it's incredibly expensive. And Mary comes in with this nard, this pure kind of liquid perfume, and it says that she begins to basically pour it on his feet, right? She wiped her feet with her hair, and the entire house was filled with the aroma of this perfume. But one of the disciples named Judas, who we all know and are going to learn a lot about this next few months, is Judas is, of course, the one that betrays Jesus, right? And he pipes up and he says, hey, quit it. What are you doing? All that perfume. It's a year's wages, right? Could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And actually, Judas is not kidding. Uh, This perfume, this uh, kind of 11-ounce pint of perfume would have been valued at about $25,000 dollars. It was worth 300 full days wages. And a denarius was a full day's wage and it was worth 300 of those. So 300 denarii, right? Which is $25,000. He said, we could have sold that and given money to the poor. And then John, of course, tells us Judas' true motive. He's like, Judas didn't really care about the poor. Judas, for whatever reason, was the guy that gets to keep the money bag. And so what Judas is thinking is, hey, we sell the money. We keep it here. You know, I'll help a little bit to myself. We'll give some away. It'll work out for everybody, right? And so that's what he's thinking. And John says that he used to just sort of help himself to what was in there. So Judas' heart is truly exposed, and he's a thief. John even goes as far to call him a thief, right? And then Jesus rebukes him. Leave her alone, he replies. And it sounds harsh, and it is harsh. It was intended that she should say this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Of course, Jesus isn't implying that we shouldn't love and serve the poor. But he's making a very true statement, which is, there will always be opportunity to love and, and serve the poor, but you will not always have this opportunity with me. Because, of course, Jesus knows that he is six days away from his betrayal, seven days away from his crucifixion, right? He knows these things are coming. They, of course, have no idea. And he says, basically, this was intended for my burial, which none of them know was just days away. Meanwhile, John makes a sort of abrupt change. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews, right? They heard that Jesus was in town, right? Because they weren't invited to this little house party. This was a gathering of people that had their lives deeply affected by Jesus, a family affair that Lazarus and Mary and Martha put together at Simon the leper's house. It probably invited those that had been healed or set free or redeemed. They didn't invite the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but they heard anyway. They heard that Jesus was there, and so they went They went because they heard that Lazarus was there with Jesus and they wanted to put their eyes on Lazarus themselves because the entire region had been talking that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and here was a chance to see not only Jesus, but Lazarus. And the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Why? Well, Lazarus was an an equal threat to their positions of power and to their place because Lazarus was evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. He, he was evidence that Jesus has authority over life and death. And so poor Lazarus gets saddled into this death sentence that's now Jesus' destiny. And they made plans to kill Lazarus as well because people were trusting Jesus because Lazarus was evidence of the miraculous nature and the divine nature of Christ. It's an incredible, incredible story on so many fronts. And there's probably about a dozen ways 
to explore it, right? We can explore it through the lens of Judas. We can explore it through the kind of contrast of Mary and Judas offering. We can explore it through a whole lot of different ways. But what really caught my heart this week as I was going through this text was the sort of beautiful nature that happens when our love for Jesus actually aligns up with his value and worth. And if you're anything like me, and and maybe you're not, but very seldom, if ever, does my love for Jesus line up with his value and worth. Oftentimes, my love for Jesus is corrupt. It's uh, hijacked by my own selfishness. Oftentimes, my worship of Jesus is, is void. It's full of distractions, right? It's full of habits, Oftentimes my offerings or my giving to the Lord are full of fear or they're full of um, sort of a kind of a habitual nature or anxiety that's attached to them. Very, off, very seldom in my life does any of my love for Jesus actually truly measure up to his incredible value and worth, right? Most often my love and my worship and my giving to the Lord are a, a sad sad picture compared to the incredible value and worth of Jesus. But every once in a while in Scripture, we see this incredible picture of what happens when our love for Jesus actually matches his value and worth. And that's what we see here in this picture. We see it played out in several different ways. We really see it played out at this dinner. I mean, you got to remember the scenario, right? This is an amazing thing. Mary and Martha, a several, maybe about as short as a week ago, were in desperate and deep kind of pleading with God. They were at the feet of Jesus. They were standing in his presence, pleading with him, saying, Lord, if you would have done this, you could have saved me all of this pain, all of this heartache, all of these things. You are big enough and you didn't do it, which is essentially what they were saying. You are too late, Right? And there was this incredible emotion tied up in there. And then Jesus does this jaw-dropping, incredible miracle where he he calls life into a dead body, and that dead body comes out. And Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. John is very clear about that. And this dinner was thrown as a moment of deep love and gratitude. It wasn't, hey, Jesus is passing through. Let's have him over for dinner. Let's clean the house and make sure things look good because that's the kind thing to do you get the sense that this dinner was a family affair that was organized because they are overflowing with this incredible loving gratitude to the God that brought their brother back to life. This is not a dinner party where people get together and just chit-chat. This is an opportunity for Mary and Martha and Lazarus to show their expression of love to Jesus. Martha serves, and Lazarus is reclining at the table, and they're at Simon the leper's house, whose whose life was an outcast, an unclean guy, who literally could go nowhere without saying, unclean, unclean, so that no one would touch him. This is that group of people gathered together to give honor with their lives and their hearts to the God that had changed them healing Simon the leper, raising Lazarus from the dead, comforting the heart of Mary and Martha, weeping with them when they wept, as we saw last week. This dinner is a beautiful expression of that. And then in comes Mary, right? Martha serving, Lazarus reclining, and in comes Mary with this expression of love that is remarkable, right? So we've got this dinner picture that is this beautiful expression of true and desperate love for Jesus, 
right? The best that they could possibly muster in their hearts and lives, broken people that have had their lives changed, all gathered in one place to tell Jesus, we love and honor you, right? And then we have this picture of the perfume. So we've got this dinner picture. We have this picture of the perfume, and there's so many things that are played out here. But I want you to understand a couple of these things. The first is the sort of value that's tied into this perfume. Now, I told you that it's worth about $25,000, 300 days wages. So we know this perfume is incredibly valuable, right? It comes from the Himalayan mountains. This is something that was given as gifts to kings. It was used in tiny, tiny increments, right? Tiny, tiny increments, think about that for a moment. What if I could give you $25,000 today? For some of us, it would be like, hey, I got another one of those in my pocket. For some of us, it would be like, dang, dude, that's real money, right? Pay off debt, down payment on a house, all kinds of things, right? Three billion people in our world live on less than $2 a day. Half of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. The people that we're talking about that are gathering around Jesus are not wealthy people. Simon the leper, he's not going to have much. The majority of the people that encountered were the poor and the marginalized and the broken and the outcast. This would have been more than they would see in a lifetime. So if you just put it in simple math with us today, three billion people in the world live on less than $2 a day which means that $25,000 is 34 years worth of daily income. You see the extravagance that is tied up in that jar. 34 years, which would have been close to the life expectancy of somebody in that time. A lifetime's worth of earning. We have the blind and the crippled, and those that Jesus touched that sat on the side of the road, and the best that they could hope for is when someone went into the temple, they would toss them a coin. And here's Mary with this extravagant, probably pooled together as a family gift. I'm guessing that Lazarus and, and Mary, we don't have evidence this either way, but it seems like maybe they pooled what they had together, and they went out and bought this. And Mary comes in with this gift that would have been the most extravagant that most likely anybody in that room would have ever seen. 34 years worth of wages, in theory, right, for most people in poverty. But for an ordinary worker, it represented one full year. And what does Mary do? She dumps it on his feet. She falls down there and she, she takes her hair, and we'll get to this in a second, she just begins to wipe up the excess. It was beautiful and it was scandalous. I mean, think about this act of love and how it matches up with Jesus' values and value and worth in the eyes of all these people. The most, the most expensive and extravagant gift dumped on the feet of God and wiped, mixed with dirt on a dirt floor in a dirt house with her hair. The value of this perfume is beautiful and it's scandalous and it's poured out on the feet of God. And then we have the purpose of this perfume. Now, this stuff was typically used in very select um, sort of rituals and rites, oftentimes and most oftentimes associated with burial. Jesus himself says, hey, leave her alone, Judas. This was, stuff was reserved and intended that she should use this perfume for the day of my 
burial. Oftentimes, uh, pistic nard or spike nard was used on burial. Why? Because bodies, when they decompose, get really stinky. And we heard that a couple of weeks ago when Martha's like, whoa, 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 don't open the tomb. He's been there for four days. There's a bad odor. And so as people would prepare a body for burial or for putting in a tomb, they would wrap them with linens and spices. And the spices were there to counteract the natural decomposition that was happening with the body. And oftentimes this specific perfume was used in that process. Little bits at a time was used to cover the odor and part of a very special ritual. It was also used at times, I'll tell you about this more, as an anointing for kings. But it was used in small quantities. And Jesus even says, this was intended for my burial, which means most likely what the plan was is that Martha and Lazarus and Mary pooled their resources, or so we think, or they gathered money, or however they came up with it, we don't know, and they were going to use this on the day that Jesus died. The idea was is that we want to give a proper and true burial to our teacher and our Lord who rescued Lazarus from the grave. And we have got this incredibly expensive perfume and we're going to use it as a day of honor on the day that he dies. But what I think is unfolding is that they cannot wait. They are beyond grateful to the point of absolutely in love that we do not want to wait any longer for this gift. We want to give it to you now. And so Mary, either as an act of the family or on her own, comes in and she falls at Jesus' feet and she dumps it all over the place as this sort of incredible act of beauty and scandalous love that says you are so valuable and so worthy to us that we're taking what we had reserved for the day that you die and we can't wait any longer and we're just going to pour it out on you. And notice nobody says a word except for Judas. It was that powerful of an act. And in an act of beauty and scandal, she dumps this perfume in a matter of seconds Right? They should have taken lifetimes to use a thimble thing at a time on the feet of Jesus. And it was beautiful, and it was a scandal, and it was unheard of, and it was unrealistic, and it was crazy, and it was magnificent, all rolled into this incredible act of love that for a moment matches the worth and value of God. But we finally sort of see that we've got this value and we've got this purpose but we've got this act, this sort of place of this perfume. Now, I mentioned that the other use of this stuff was for anointing. Oftentimes, it was given to a king. Oftentimes, it was used as a place of significant honor. When somebody comes into your home and they were a person of incredible importance, you would take some of this perfume and you would put it in their head. Anoint their head as, an, as a sign of, of honor and respect. It would be the only other real use for it. In both Matthew uh, and Luke, record that Mary uh, actually put it on Jesus' head as well. But only John records her putting it on his feet, which means most likely what Mary did was she began by putting this perfume on Jesus' head as a sign of honor and respect, and she ends up falling at his feet and just pouring the rest out. And it's this incredible picture of Worship, And then she does what is beyond comprehension. A Jewish woman lets down her hair. And she takes her hair down, which would have been seen by anybody in those days as an act that where she is soiling her reputation. Because it was an act that you did not do, especially to a man. But 
Mary forgoes her reputation and she begins to wipe up the excess of this perfume and dirt and mud with her own hair. And like we saw before, it is beautiful and it is scandalous. And not one person in the room, as we read, calls it into question. But they show, and John tells, the act of humility and love and value and worth. When you put all these things together, what we see is just for a brief moment, just for a tiny brief moment, the love that Mary and Martha and Lazarus have for Jesus matches his value and his worth. As I think about my own life and all this, right, as I think about my own expressions of worship, my own expressions of giving, even the things that unfold in my heart, I am ashamed and betrayed, right, by how hollow and empty my own worship and love for Jesus is. My love for the Lord is often so corrupt. It's so selfish. It's so needy. Never, and I say never, and I mean that word as I say it, has my love for the Lord ever really truly matched his value and worth. I am begrudging in my giving. I'm desperate in my prayers. I'm faithless in my following, like all of these things. And very seldom, if ever, has my true, like passionate, overflowing love like we see here poured out in a way that actually matches Jesus' value and worth. And I'm not just talking about because something's worth $25,000. I'm talking just because it is this incredibly precious act that the rest of the world would have said, that is so stupid. Because that's what Judas does, right? That is ridiculous. Because it was. But they didn't care. They didn't want to waste one more moment waiting on Jesus to die so they could use it. They wanted to pour it out now because its value was so much more important when it's poured out on the living. And I think about my own life and I'm just so desperate for a time when my love for the Lord truly matches, truly matches his value and his worth. Our churches are filled with people, you and I included, that come in with hollow expectations of how you're going to entertain me today. How are you going to get me to come back? Is the coffee hot? Is it made from wherever? Are these things here? Did anybody say hi to me? We come in with these expectations of saying, you all owe me something. And churches like consumer retail spaces fight over the same group of people to try and make ourselves feel like what we're doing has value. And somewhere in all that Western idea of church, we've bankrupted the idea of worship. And we've made it about people. Now, of course, this is an overgeneralization, but there's truth even in our space, right? We're as guilty as anyone. I'm deeply convicted that in my own heart, even on a Sunday morning, I come with a thousand other things before the God of the universe who raised me from the dead spiritually, who has set my path from darkness to light, who has never once treated me as my sins deserve, who has forgiven me time and time and time again, who I continue to betray, who has loved me when the rest of the world would throw me out, who has given me what I don't deserve, who through thousands upon thousands upon thousands of prayers has listened patiently to my heart, has corrected and moved and saved and redeemed and rescued 
and yet I'm so restless. At some point in time, my love for Jesus, I pray, will match his value and worth. And I pray that's your heart. It's what we see in this text. Mary pouring out this family's love offering to the Lord. It was beautiful and it was scandalous. And on some level, when we celebrate communion, when we talk about this together, this is this similar picture. This is not a fun family meal. This is a reminder of an act of of a desperate people that were so in love with their positions and power that they were willing to murder the Son of God, to literally try and kill Jesus because they didn't want to lose places of power and position. And of course, in God, it is an incredible redemptive plan. It doesn't allow himself to be captured. He voluntarily gives himself up for the sin of humanity. And he sacrifices his life. He's crucified. And then in this incredible moment of victory over death, he raises from the dead. This table is a picture of this incredible, beautiful scandal. On that very night that he was betrayed, the night of Passover, the six nights from this Saturday that we talked about in our text, Jesus gathers again with those that he loves deeply and desperately. He gathers again with those who he knows will betray him, that very same Judas that sat there at the table he rebuked is going to be getting up and selling him for a mere 30 pieces of silver. The opposite so much of what Mary did, right? I give 25,000 for the Lord and Judas is going to sell him for 30 pieces of silver, which is under $1,000 that he eventually will throw back into the temple. On that very night, he gathers with his disciples and he gives thanks. And after giving thanks, he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, poured out for you. This is the new covenant. And every time that we partake in this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes again. This table is not a denominational table. It is open to all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. It is an expression of his extravagant love and an opportunity for you and I as followers of Christ to love him in an extravagant way. When we participate in this meal together with love and desperation and faith in our hearts, we honor and worship the Lord. When we come to this table, as Paul says, with things in our heart that are unconfessed, with fears and anxieties and brokenness, we walk a dangerous line. Paul's very clear about it. He calls us to examine our hearts. And as we take this table together, we do it with the attitude of worship that honors and glorifies the risen Lord. As we do each each month, we take communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy word. Uh, It just really means when you come down, you take a piece of bread and you can dip it in the cup and you can eat it. We'll have stations in the front and the back. My my prayer is that as our worship team begins to lead us in worship, that you would contemplate these things that we read and heard today in our heart, that we would make right any brokenness, that we would confess any areas of sinfulness, any faithlessness before we come and worship the Lord through this meal together. After you take communion, we invite you to remain standing as we close our time in worship. I'll invite our servers to come forward this morning.